episode number 25 of the Media Narrative Podcast. I'm Rob Hoschild. This is a show featuring media makers, their stories, and their process. They have a certain expectation, they being the audience, that says he's going to give us some great music. He's going to educate us about the music. He's going to inform us as to what's happening with regards to music and culture. But he's also going to take a moment to at least drop some knowledge on us that will help us, motivate us, so that we can be active in doing something that's going to impact our lives. Born in Puerto Rico, Jose Masso has hosted Con Salsa, a Latin music radio show since 1975. The show features great music, interviews, and spoken word riffs every Saturday night and has led to Masso being a leader and ever-present figure in the Boston community. His list of awards and work credits and advisory positions, well, it's just too long to even start to go into. I met Jose in the late 1990s when I started doing news work for WBUR in Boston. In this episode, he talks about building his show in the classrooms where he taught public school. He tells an amazing story about engaging in dialogue with people in prison. There's a 22-page letter that he wrote in that story. And he also talks about how he has worked tirelessly to make his radio show not only about music, but about social issues. I hope you like this conversation with Jose as much as I did. So, Jose Masso, thank you so much for being on the show. Appreciate it. Rob, it's my pleasure. It's an honor to be here. Thank oh, you for inviting me. Thank you. And we go back a few years, both working at WBUR, maybe 20 years ago I first met you there. Of course, you've been on the air for 43 years now, yes, right? Yes, yes. So it's great to sit and talk. You play such an important role in Boston as a voice on the radio, as a leader in the community, in the Latino community and beyond. Uh, so one thing I'm wondering, was there a voice in the broadcast world that influenced you when you were growing up? Did you listen to somebody on the radio who helped shape the kind of work you do now on the radio? How did that all come about for you? Well, actually, yes, um, but it wasn't growing up. What happened was um, I came to the United States at the age of 20, transferred from University of Puerto Rico to Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Antioch College being a very liberal arts, some would consider radical left of left of left of left type of college, right. which in my opinion it is. I mean, the uh, the motto that Horace Mann, the president and founder, left us was be ashamed to die until you have achieved the victory for humanity. So that's what we lived with wow. every single day. And I still live with that every single day. Yeah. But on a, um, on a particular moment in time, the young lords, remember this was the 1970s, so there was a civil rights movement, it was Black Powers, the Black Panthers, it was Malcolm X, it was, um, you know, Women's Lib, it was Cesar Chavez, it was the Young Lords. And some of the Young Lords went from New York to Chicago, stopped at Yellow Springs, and spent a night in my dorm. And they included Pablo Yoruba Guzman and uh, Juan Gonzalez and Felipe Luciano, mm-hmm. who were founding members of the Young Lords. Later, Felipe and Pablo would go into media, and so would Juan. Juan would become a writer. Uh, Pablo would become a writer and a radio announcer, mm-hmm. and Felipe would do television, uh, poetry, and he did an iconic radio show called Latin Roots okay. uh, on FM in the early 1970s. Mm. And so I heard that before I started Con Salsa, mm-hmm. and what I loved about what Felipe was doing, uh, unlike my show, which is bilingual, what I liked was that he was able to integrate not just the music 
and the culture, but a lot of the social issues of the time. And of course, mm-hmm. he was coming from the frame, having been an activist as a young lord, to posit this for the audience to understand and, and consider. So that was very important for me. That sort of like gave me an opening to say, okay, I can be about the music, mm-hmm. be about the culture, be about the historical significance of this great music uh, that has been part of our culture for so many years, but I can also broaden the lens so that I can at least tie it um, to the social issues from a Latino perspective, but also from, like you said, a broader perspective mm-hmm. that would at least unite people and activate people. Yeah, and and it's so that was that's obviously when I hear your show now, I hear that in your show, but that mm-hmm. was always a part of the show from the very beginning. From the very the beginning, it was because I was a teacher, mm-hmm. so uh, I taught bilingual education in Boston, mm-hmm. and I had originally wanted to be a journalist, but um, that wasn't available to me neither at the University of Puerto Rico or Antioch. But education was, and I decided that's what I wanted to do. Being fluent in both languages gave me the opportunity then to work in an environment such as the one they had in Boston to be a bilingual teacher. Mm-hmm. And from the very beginning, coming from Antioch, the pedagogy that I used was Pablo Freire's pedagogy that had to do with uh, pedagogy of liberation for the oppressed, which was very much a very different than traditional pedagogy that you would see in the classrooms, right? So mm-hmm. this came from the experience of the person to the student. So the first year I used film. Mm-hmm. that um, I had seen when I was a kid growing up in Puerto Rico. And then the second year I used video, knew nothing about video, but I had the kids do video projects mm. all throughout this, the year. And these projects were very much about themselves, mm-hmm. right? About who they were, the family, their neighborhood, et cetera. And it gave them an opportunity to develop certain skills, communication skills, um, research, writing, uh, you know, using the tools, et cetera, which were not the usual classroom type of activities. And mm-hmm. the kids loved this. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the school also appreciated this and urged me to do more. So the third year, I used my music collection, which was very broad. Mm-hmm. And You it, brought in vinyl then uh, at yes, that time. Yes, yeah. thank okay. you, yes. <laughs> <clears throat> and interesting enough, my students every year would say to me, Mr. Maso, we love you as a teacher. You are great. My mm-hmm. God, we're learning so much from you. But you're limiting yourself to 20 students per hour. <laughs> Why not do a radio show where you can reach thousands? Right. And they were the ones that kicked me out of the classroom to do radio. <laughs> so from the beginning, when I had an idea about doing a radio show, thanks to them, I said, it's going to be bilingual. Mm-hmm. It's going to be Afro-Latin centric. Um, it's going to be informative. It's going to be educational. It's going to be entertaining. But it's also going to have that piece, which will be of affirmation of who we are, uh, our role in society, and how collectively we could be stronger, mm-hmm. and that there are certain issues that we can make change, right? Mm-hmm. And so thus, all these things were very much part of the ethos, if you will, of what I was trying to do mm-hmm. on a weekly basis on the show. And so from the very beginning, WBUR 1973, that was the I year. started in 75. 75, June sorry. 22nd, 75. 1975. So- how has it evolved over time? I mean, you've raised a lot of awareness. You've promoted a lot of conversation and thought and community around this radio show and the work that you do. So how has the show itself evolved, if at all, as a result over those 43 years? Well, on several several fronts. So along with what would be the model every week, um, I had the opportunity, of course, to engage with musicians which then gave me the opportunity to promote them 
and promote a meeting by doing concerts and things of that nature. So I got to know musicians and singers, iconic figures from, you know, interviewing Dizzy Gillespie to Tito mm. Puente wow. to Ray Barreto, to you name it. Um, and that then gave me another platform, which was that you could hear me on weekends, but undoubtedly you would see me somewhere, someplace, tied to some kind of musical event mm-hmm. in the community. Um, and by that in the community, it could be Symphony Hall with Tito Puente Machito, or it could be Berkeley with Eddie Palmieri, Mogo Santa Maria, or it could be, you know, in Via Victoria. It mm-hmm. didn't matter, but you would see me tied to the music. Yeah, and I've seen you in all of those places, <laughs> yep. And, and, and that gave me another platform, yeah. right? Um, at the same time, I would then try as best as possible to marry the show to what was happening out in the community. So, for instance, in 79, I think it was, we did the... A Mandela concert at Harvard Stadium, mm. which was Bob Marley, yeah. which was Patti LaBelle, Alatunji, Dick Gregory was there, mm. Eddie Palmieri performed. That is an iconic <clears throat> moment in, oh, yes. in music history and in Boston history. Oh, yes. And so you were there on stage for yeah. parts of the No kidding. Yeah. And we just, uh, Rebe Garofalo, who was one of the organizers, just found the video of Eddie Palmieri's performance. We had the Bob Marley performance, which the Bob Marley family now has, but we just found the video of Eddie Palmieri. So we're going to try to work it so we can do the whole, mm-hmm. you know, three cameras, one hour performance of Eddie at, at, uh, at Harvard Stadium. So what wow. I'm trying to say is that being able to then have that trilogy, right, of a radio show, live performances of artists, my being part of it, but then tying it as often as possible to some type of social movement, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, was part of that trajectory. And so that has grown because it, with the changing of the demographics, the changing of time, what those social movements are have grown and have changed, mm-hmm. obviously, right? So the issue of immigration was not the issue of immigration back in 1975. Mm. Um, the issue of gay rights was not the issue back in 1975. So when you look at immigration, what is your take on how things have changed uh, since 75? So in 75, you would say, or I would say, and it doesn't surprise me that even in 2018, in 75, people were not aware of Puerto Ricans as being U.S. citizens, Mm -hmm. number one. And so if they were not aware of Puerto Ricans being U.S. citizens, they were very much not aware of any other Latino um, ethnicity in their history Mm -hmm. at all. At the time in the United States, but in Boston in particular, the demographics were majority Latino, Puerto Rican, followed by Cuban, changed to followed by Dominican, Mm. changed to followed by Dominican, and then some Brazilian. Then it started expanding, so you would have Colombian, Salvadorian, Central Americans, Mexicans. Mm -hmm. And so that Latino palette of colors and accents started broadening, and the issue of immigration was then different because it wasn't so much, here's a U.S. citizen who happens to be Puerto Rican, of which the United States knows very little about. Here are not only U.S. citizens who are Puerto Rican, but here are a whole broad palette of Latinos who folks cannot distinguish one from another. They would not be able to tell you, Mm. that guy's Dominican, what his or her history is, that one is Haitian, Brazilian, or Colombian, and to know the relationship between those countries, the United States, the history of the United States in these particular countries, the history Mm -hmm. of the United States with Mexico, et cetera, et cetera. So that non 
information, that ignorance, if you will, on the part of a lot of people made it so then what I would share on the music and through the show would pay more attention to how do I educate you on what the immigrant experience is, both for the non-U.S. citizen and what's the migrant experience for the U.S. citizen that comes from Puerto Rico. Um, and so you'll hear more, I, I would be much more purposeful in trying to find music songs that spoke to that experience mm -hmm. and try to couple them in a way, segues that would touch on, here's what these immigrant groups are living and this is how they're expressing it through music or spoken word. Mm -hmm. um, so that now is very much part of the reality of where we are today. Mm -hmm. Whereas back in 1975, it would have been a different Right. Different, different type of uh, of conversation. Yeah, readily, um, you know, the issues that I knew were very much part of my upbringing in Puerto Rico, you know, machismo being one of them, mm -hmm. was one that we needed to address. Now, doing radio, being a community activist, um, doing television, has given me agency and some type of credibility, I believe for an audience to be able to at least listen to what I have to say, mm -hmm. right? So that when I speak to these issues that I speak to as being some of the baggage that we bring to the United States or we learn uh, through whatever means, uh, they pay attention and, and, and they will respond accordingly, right? Mm -hmm. So prisoners, for instance, have a large following among the prison population, and that's obvious because they're in prison, and you know they have little access to media, and, the, right. and they can't get on the computer very much. Exactly. But terrestrial radio is exactly, is, uh, exactly. on the sphere. Yeah. Exactly, and and so my show is very much listened to mm -hmm. by the prison community. Wow, that's great. <clears throat> and I know this because I've been in prisons to speak, I've been in prisons mm -hmm. to to visit. Uh, I've always said to prisoners, when you come out and you're free. Contact me. I want to know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I want to know what you're up to. And I will be at festivals um, where people will come up to me wanting to take a picture, give me a handshake, hug me, and they will tell me, look, I, I did 12 years, and you made it possible for me to wow. get through those 12 years, but you also inspired me to move on. Here's my wife. Here's my son. And they will start talking, and they'll get emotional and all that kind of stuff. But they will pay attention to the things I'm saying. Mm -hmm. At times, they will... They will uh, What's the word I want to say? They will respond in a way that they're saying, oh my God, what's he talking about? No, and they'll get upset. Mm -hmm. I had an incident. <laughs> I had, there was a call one time. You'll appreciate this since you've done radio. I would do shout outs. Mm -hmm. So this woman called me from Lynn and she started naming all her children. And she was saying, I want you to give a shout to Roberto, to Mario, to Miguel. And each one was in a different Penal institution, Concord, Roberto and Concord, uh, Miguel and Concord Farms, wow. um, uh, Mario and in, in Norfolk. You know, she mm -hmm. five kids. I went, wait a minute, all these kids are in jail. Mm -hmm. But she was, she was calling me as if she was saying, I was saying, I want you to give a shout out to my son who's at Yale, my other son who's at Princeton, the other one who's mm -hmm. at Harvard. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, mm. no. <laughs> Okay, yes, I'm going to give it a shout-out, but don't say it as if that's something for you to be proud of, the yeah. fact that you have five kids in jail. Right. And then <clears throat> they would have nicknames, right? And the nicknames would be gangster names. You know, mm -hmm. it was like uh, Machete or, or uh, Pitola 25. You know, these mm -hmm. were... And, and I'm like... 
So I went off on a 15-minute uh, monologue, mm-hmm. challenging both the audience, the, the folks in jail, their respective uh, relatives, parents, loved ones, et cetera. I said, look, let's take a minute here. Let's, see, let's take a minute of what we're, we're, we're doing here. A, there's no doubt I have empathy for those whose loved ones are in jail. Mm-hmm. B, I believe very much in redemption and that you, through your time in jail, will reflect and grow and be a different person when you come out. C, I just want to let you know that if you go in and you continue with this identity that's the identity of antisocial behavior through your nicknames, for instance, why don't you use your real name? Start over by saying, I wasn't born with this nickname. I was Mm -hmm. born with my name. Use that as your calling card. Mm -hmm. Don't continue this. They got upset. So they wrote me a letter, handwritten letter. These, these, uh, the inmates. The inmates, handwritten letter. On yellow, I have it at home. And and it was signed by 33 prisoners. Mm. It was one guy who wrote up with 33 prisoners. And they start off praising me, and then they get into, you know, who are you and nicknames are part of, and and the music you play, by the way, why are you playing so much political music, and blah, 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 blah. So mm-hmm. they, they went off, right? Uh-huh. Now, I've been in prisons long enough visiting and talking to know a little bit about the culture. So I read the letter, and I wrote back like a 22-page typewritten letter. Oh, my. And I mailed it knowing that they would receive it before the next show. Uh-huh. I hey, you must have written that letter quickly. I did. It's a weekly show. Oh, no, I, I wrote yeah. it quick. I, wow. I, I, got the, I, I got the letter like on a, when I walked into the station, it was mm-hmm. Saturday, I picked up the letter. That Sunday I started writing. By uh-huh. Monday it was done and it was out. Wow. And before the show aired, the phones were lit. And I picked up the phone, and it was the wife of the guy who wrote the letter. Wow. And she says, listen, my husband just wants you to know he feels so bad. He's embarrassed. He didn't mean, oh, my God, et cetera. Because mm-hmm. I responded to him, yeah. but I did so you know, in a way that I had respect for him. But I articulated everything that I was saying, why I was saying it, and what I expected of him, and why I was challenging him. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, you're a leader, obviously, because 33 people have signed this letter. Mm. And so I see you as a leader. And if you are a leader, you have to make a decision how you're going to lead. You're going to lead by example. And if you're going to lead by example, is it that you're going to continue this cycle mm-hmm. or you're going to make it so that when you come out, you're going to make a difference, right? Wow. He then wrote me a letter where none of the other ones signed. He was the only one to sign. Huh. And he said that the other ones didn't want to sign because... After they read my letter, they felt embarrassed that they had sent me the first letter, right? I see. And I knew what was happening. I knew what was happening was basically, it, you know, they were they were all upset that Sunday. They were all talking amongst themselves, and they said, "We're going to write them a letter and let them know that we don't agree with them, et cetera, et cetera." And he won't even write back to us. And mm-hmm. then when I wrote back to him, you know, they read this letter, and so now they're sharing the letter. And as everybody's reading the letter, they go, "Oh my God, wait a minute! Oh no, that was you. You were the one that did it, not me." Uh-huh. You were, okay? They wanted to take the fingerprints. <laughs> yeah. But to a certain degree. The fact that I responded to them, and I took the time to write 22 pages, typewritten, mind mm-hmm. you. When he got out, he called me, and then he said, look, I'm going to Dominican Republic. Uh, I'll keep in touch. And he's kept in touch every so often. Mm-hmm. But I know that I have at least the ability and the opportunity to impact somebody's life. 
Uh, I don't know always if it does, but when they do respond, I know that I've done something, right? So having that kind of agency then means that I have a responsibility to at least through what I do, what I engage in, what I'm thinking, what I'm sharing. You know, I always share with them that I always go through my ritual every morning, which is where, you know, I meditate and pray. And I say in my meditation and pray, listen, I would love it that what I do, what I say, what I think, what I feel today are in sync. Mm. And then I go off and say, I hope that I have the opportunity during the day to engage with other men and women who are enlightened and who share values with me, that mm. they want to leave this place a better place than what it was when we were born. And that they think that the way of doing it is so that all our children and their children are healthy, but not just physically healthy, that they're mentally healthy, yeah. that they're emotionally healthy, that they are uh, intellectually healthy, that they're socially healthy, financially healthy, spiritually healthy. In essence, that they're holistically healthy. Mm. And then I end by saying, and I hope that whatever happiness I receive today is not a consequence of somebody else's misery. Mm. And I'll say that often in the show because people will ask me to say it because they want to hear it so that they can become engaged in that type, same type of thing. So they know you talk about this period of meditation and prayer on the show. And what exactly. You do. Yeah. exactly. Mm. And so when I'm out and about, the audience then knows, okay, if Jose is saying this is because he believes in this and he's doing something about it. He's not just saying it, he's thinking about it, he's feeling it, and he's doing something about it. If Jose has spoken on this issue, it's because he's given it a lot of thought. Mm -hmm. He has studied it, he is doing some critical thinking behind it before he goes out and touches on the subject, right? And I've had occasions um, where I would be in public gatherings, rallies, with regards to immigration. And Puerto Ricans will come up to me and say, why are you up there speaking about this when you're a U.S. citizen? As a Puerto Rican, you're a citizen, you don't have to speak about this. And I said, no, on the contrary, I do, because I am a U.S. citizen, and that's part of being a citizen. And I'm speaking for those who don't have the voice because they can't, because they can't vote, because they're concerned about their legal status, and they're in the shadows. So I have to take that opportunity to be very forceful and be very public about mm. that stand. And so over those 43 years, I think whatever the issues are, are very much partial part of what the programming is. And obviously the last two years, even more so, because we can't afford to be quiet. And mm-hmm. so both the music and the message and the spoken word that I use touches on what it is to be a citizen, what it is to be a democracy, what it is to have freedom of speech, what the Constitution is about. It's basically a Citizens 101 as to we cannot remain silent when all these things are happening. Mm -hmm. And we cannot remain silent when, you know, there's anti-Semitism, when there's racism, when there's homophobia, Islamophobia, when there's misogyny, when there is, uh, you know, just mendacity as if that becomes now the operative way of operating. Mm -hmm. We, We can't keep silent. And so... The show becomes more and more that kind of speaking truth to power mm-hmm. than ever before. You're hearing the introductory theme music that Jose Masso had commissioned for Con Salsa back in 1975 and continues to be the theme today. (laughs) 
you've just said so many things that are uh, great and interesting and make me want to ask more questions. Um, you know, what you've also demonstrated in that story is that in order to have good and productive, meaningful f- future looking dialogue, it's important to both be critical and respectful at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that not only applies to uh, the conversation around a radio show, but to anything into politics and a lot of things that are going on in society. So I thank you for that. I mean, that's a really interesting story. And I'm also wondering those 22 pages, is that published anywhere? I've uh, got a copy of it. I'll send it to you. Do. Yeah. I'd, I've got I'd a copy of it. Love to see that. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it just sounds like a really interesting document and, and maybe something that other uh, folks who are in the situation those those men are in would also benefit uh, from reading. So, you know, when you put together, oh, I want to ask, since you, you've been talking about how you see your role uh, in this radio show is going beyond music. And, mm-hmm. and, and yes, it is about celebration and dancing and mm-hmm, things like that mm-hmm. and, and all these other things. You've been with WBR for all these years. Um, is that... A, has that always been symbiotic in terms of, uh, you know, like, cause most, most music shows that you hear on, uh, radio stations, public radio stations don't have as much of that component as yours does. Right. So has that ever been something that you, you've sort of negotiated or discussed with the people at the station or has it always been just sort of copacetic and cool? Copacetic. Yeah. They've always given me that freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, I'm the last of the music shows on BR. Mm-hmm. You know, jazz was weaned out. James Isaacs was the last of the music shows before mine. Um, and it wasn't um, by chance. I mean, there was political, political and social activism that allowed that show, my show to continue. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of it, you know, Rob, was... So <clears throat> my doing radio is a weekend thing. Mm-hmm. Right? There was a time when I was doing radio Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights. Yeah. Um, but now it's just one night. But I've had a life where I've been a teacher, where I've worked in government at the highest level and senior staff for Governor Dukakis, mm-hmm. where I've been on political campaigns, presidential, where I worked in public service for the MBTA, now for Massport where I worked in academia at Northeastern University, where I worked in philanthropy at the Nelly May Education Foundation, where I was a television host on a key mm-hmm. for 15 years or so, where um, I was a sports agent. Yeah, um, music or, promoter. A music promoter. You acted in a movie. All those things. Quite a right? multifaceted <laughs> career, yeah. Jose. So, so I've had all these things. Yeah. Um, so it isn't like, Jose, what do you do for work? Or what do you do? What's your, what's, what do you do? It's not like I do radio. It's like, I've done all these things mm. because that's been my life since very young. But radio has been the constant. So at the station at the time, years ago, I would say in the early 80s when they were starting to phase out certain music, the radio station only knew me as coming in on weekends. They didn't know me during the week. They didn't know what I did, mm. what kind of work I was doing, how I engaged. They just knew, okay, this guy comes in, he goes out. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. And we rarely see him. Yeah. We know he works here, but we... As a weekend guy at that As radio weekend, station, I know exactly what you you're know, talking right? about. Yeah. You know, right? <laughs> and so and so because of that, when they were eliminating shows, they were doing so from the point of view of, okay, there's a business decision, we're going to eliminate shows. But they didn't take into context what the social implications were. Yeah. And my show, because of its standing amongst a broad community, not just a Latino community. Mm-hmm. Latinos are surprised for us. Many Latinos who hear my show, which is 
a sizable audience, they're shocked to know that more non-Latinos hear the show. And they go, mm -hmm. oh my God, this is yeah. crazy. Everybody, I, you know, they'll tell me at times that they will be at a workplace um, where they are the minority, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they will be talking about music and then somebody leaning, oh, you're talking about that guy who does that show on, and they go, you listen to that show? Yeah, I listen to it all the time. And they go, you listen to that song? <laughs> and they're shocked because they don't expect, or in their mind, they cannot believe that so many non-Latinos will hear the show. Mm -hmm. And so when the station was thinking of cutting the shows and it came to mind, the response of a diverse, broad specter of audience that included everybody you can think of, that included social activists who quickly mobilized. So you had pickets, so they had all the, you know, all the things that mm. you would know were the things that you would do. The station wasn't prepared for that. They mm. were shocked. They were like, whoa, wait a minute, what's this? When was this about? This was this in 1980s. Okay. Um, I have the exact date because I have mm -hmm. pictures of the picket when we did the pickets. Mm. Um, and, and so the response then from the station was one of, we didn't realize who this guy is, number one. Mm. And it, turned it to be much more respectful in a way mm -hmm. because it, we got to a respectful uh, dialogue and also an understanding, right? Mm -hmm. So now they say, well, wait a minute, we, pretty, we, sh we should pay attention to this guy. Mm -hmm. He's an asset. He's not just another guy doing yeah. a radio show. Right. Um, and so I think since that time, everybody who sat at a chair who's made a decision maker, be it uh, you know Paula Cameron or be it um, Charlie Kravitz or be it Sam Fleming, whoever it is, has been supportive of that because they see it as an asset and not as anything other than that, right? Mm -hmm. So they don't just see it as a music show. They say, this guy is representing something that's very important that right. we have to embrace. And so that allows me that freedom to be that eclectic mm -hmm. in the type of programming I do. That's amazing. It must have been a huge turning point in your career to have to go through that process and then come out the other end with this validation of, of the support and continuing from both the community and from the station. It, it was. But it, at the same time, though, it was a reaffirmation that if um, if you do things the right way, people will respond to it mm -hmm. in, in a positive way. And so I know, again, I use the word agency. The audience has given me this agency. They have mm -hmm. given me you know, the agency to be the voice of this community. And they know that, uh, you know, the issues that I am deeply involved in or engaged in, you ask changes also. So climate change is mm -hmm. a big deal. You know, for me, climate change is a very important issue that we have to address and we yeah. have to address it now. And so that audience is paying attention to, okay, Jose speaking about this topic. Mm -hmm. uh, what should we know? What should we do? How do we go about doing it? All right. So these are the types of things that they understand. So yeah. so they, they have a certain expectation, they being the audience that says, he's going to give us some great music. Mm -hmm. He's going to educate us about the music. He's going to inform us as to what's happening with regards to music and culture. But he's also going to take a moment to at least drop some knowledge on mm -hmm. us that will help us, you know, motivate us so that we can be active in doing something that's right. going to impact our lives. And and for anyone who's listening who hasn't heard your show, uh, it is, like you said earlier, a bilingual show, so you will speak in Spanish and then immediately translate in English. That's usually the way you do it, right? Or maybe it's the other way around sometimes. Yeah, yeah. either way, whatever comes out first. <laughs> right. Whatever comes out first, I'll say it again in Spanish. It's, in it's amazing to me, too, uh, to listen. I, I, I pick up little bits of Spanish here and there. Um, and, and an interesting thing is, uh, obviously, the, the show is streamed live when you're on. It's every Saturday night 
midnight Eastern Standard Time from noon to 10, 10 p.m. 10 to 3 o'clock in the morning. 3 o'clock. So five-hour radio show, five which hours. is a long radio show. Yeah. Um, and, and you can pick it up at WBUR.org. People listen to it in, in, in Latino world. I mean, there's people in Puerto Rico who are listening to the show, and they could be listening to local Puerto Rican radio. How does that happen? Rob, you know, that blows me away. I, I, this, these are the moments when I'm really – because I say, listen, you've got so much radio to listen to in, mm-hmm. in Puerto Rico. Why are you listening to me? And they say, well, first and foremost, I heard you when I lived in Massachusetts. So that's a way to connect the home. But second is because your show is unique. We don't have a show like yours in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. We don't have this commercial radio, which is great. But this type of combination of education, information, motivation, inspiration, um, we don't have Mm -hmm. that. We don't have that. There are people who do great music shows on a particular subject matter who know the subject matter very well, mm-hmm. uh, but they don't have that broad uh, portfolio of knowledge that has to do with other things unlike you. Yeah, uh, And so right. I, I find that to be rewarding. And yeah. when they when they send me a text or, or they're on Facebook and they say, listen to them also from so-and-so in Puerto Rico mm-hmm. or in Japan or or other parts of Latin America or, or in Europe, I'm, I'm like, oh my God, yeah. this is like a broad, wide world audience. Yeah, it is huge. <laughs> so is huge. Uh, just a moment ago, you mentioned the fact that this is, you know, essentially your weekend job, this mm-hmm. this radio hosting thing, although everything, what you do in the community and what you do in general, it seems to me like it, it's happening all the time, seven days a week. Then you also listed all these jobs uh, that you've had over the years from education and, and you were, you know, like you said, uh, the governor of Massachusetts hired you as his Hispanic liaison, mm-hmm. uh, all these positions of leadership with organizations. How does that work uh, sort of fit together with this other part of who you are as this uh, uh, kind of spokesman and advocate for Latin music and the Latin community and and just people in general in Boston and beyond? Because those are very specific jobs. Like you work for Massport, which is the Commonwealth of Massachusetts Transportation mm-hmm. Agency, and mm-hmm. you do community relations. And, and I know you speak on a wealth of issues for mm-hmm. them. Like I heard you talk about uh, um, gender violence mm-hmm. or, or uh, sexual misconduct mm-hmm. in the workplace at one point. Mm-hmm. So how does, does this all kind of fit together seamlessly for you? Does it feel like what you do with Consalsa kind of weaves in and out of this other work? It does. And and part of what happens is I learned early when I would be considered for a job and being interviewed, I'd say, look, I do this radio show. Mm-hmm. If this is going to be a problem, we might have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and and all the time they said, no, it's not going to be a problem. On the contrary, this is an added value to you being part of our team mm-hmm. because you bring uh, the ability to connect with people and people to connect to you who we would not be able to connect with, mm-hmm. you know, on, on a given moment. Um, and so the jobs always understand that role, but they also understand and give me freedom to be able to integrate it into what I'm doing in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example of Massport. So when the current president had, at least in mind, a policy having to do with immigrants coming from uh, other countries, mm-hmm. in particular the Middle East, mm-hmm. uh, what he called Muslim countries, mm-hmm. which were not Muslim countries, but countries in which there were folks who uh, who practiced Muslim faith. Mm-hmm. Um, there was concern, of course, at airports because, as you remember, there were rallies and manifestations in Seattle, mm-hmm. in New York, mm-hmm. even here in Boston, etc. Um, and those who went to the airport were not just pro-immigrant advocates that included 
uh, folks who work at the airport who are from many of these countries. Um, you know, people think of the airports as being the traveler. They think of the airports as being the airlines. But a good number of the subcontractors hire immigrants as their workforce. Yeah, they're the ones who clean. They're the ones who pick up. They're the ones who serve. They're the ones who do all the service type of jobs, et cetera, et cetera similar to hotels mm -hmm. and, and similar to the downtown um, office buildings. Uh, these people, their voices have to be heard. And at the same time, they have to understand what the policies are so they, they can understand. Yeah. And so that's a role that's very comfortable for me, mm -hmm. right? And so um, institutions who hire me know that, okay, if there's somebody who can at least uh, understand where they're coming from and be able to share with this audience where we're coming from as policymakers, Jose, you're the one, okay? Mm -hmm. And so it's been integral in everything I've done, which mm -hmm. I, I find is a blessing because that allows me to use those skills, allows me to use that knowledge, allows right. me to use those contacts in ways that um, they wouldn't have been available to these institutions. That's great. I'm sure it must be a big uh, <laughs> boon for these folks that you've worked for. You mentioned earlier interviewing some very big names in music. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your approach to doing interviews, um, whether you do them live or recorded. What, what's sort of uh, your approach to interviewing? I mean, you mentioned Dizzy Gillespie, for example, and a few other folks. So uh, what is that like, and, and how do you go about sort of conducting those interviews? So um, similar to you, do mm -hmm. homework. Yeah, right. <laughs> Be prepared, do a lot of homework. But, you know, I think when I did Dizzy, I did it uh, at Sandy's in Beverly. It was no longer Sandy's at the Pike. It was in Beverly. That's North and Shore here in Massachusetts. North Shore. And I remember being nervous um, because it was Dizzy Gillespie. It was like, you know, I mean. Understandable. Yeah, and it was during my first year. So uh, it was, I just started doing radio. My first year I had interviewed Tito Puente. I was, you know, I mean, wow. I interviewed all these iconic figures. Um, so it was like, oh my God. But first and foremost, uh, I did a lot of preparation, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I knew what the subject matter was. I, I You knew their music. I'm I knew sure. their music. Yeah. I, I was able to at least, if they gave me an answer, I knew what type of follow-up question based on what they were, at, what they were answering. Um, I also knew that I wanted the audience to hear certain things as I asked the questions. So there were questions that maybe um, would be simple answers, but I knew that some people in the audience wouldn't, have made that connection unless mm -hmm. they heard it. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing was that I learned a lot by interviewing these people, right? Yeah. Uh, there, there were things that they were telling me that they opened up to share that were, was not in the playbook of the information I had read on. Wow. So this, these were nuggets I was going, wow. That's great. Um, you know, I interviewed Ruben Blades, who I worked with for many years and who I met the summer of my first year. Mm-hmm. So the summer of my first year, I did the show June 22nd. I did about two weeks, and then I went down to New York, spent two weeks in New York, then the July 4th weekend. Mm -hmm. And I planted myself at the offices of what used to be Fania Records, 888 7th Street. And the owner said to me, listen, sit right here in the conference room. Don't move. Musicians and singers are going to be coming in. As you see them, tap them. They'll come in and they'll interview with you. And that was the case. They would come in and then they would direct them to me. Hey, how you doing? And boom, they would sit down. I would do all these interviews. Wow. So I interviewed Ray Barreto. Mm -hmm. And Ray said he had a new album. I said, how long are you going to be here? I said, I'll be here all afternoon, two evening. He said, don't go. My new singer, 
who you're gonna like is gonna come by and I mm-hmm. want you to interview him. Mm-hmm. And I had seen him sing with Ray at the United Nations, Ruben Blades. And so when Ruben comes, I introduced myself. He said, oh, so you're from Puerto Rico? I said, yes, and listen, do me a favor. Don't ever forget to play the music. And he started listening to all these musicians that he had grown up listening to. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I will, I'll never forget doing that. I will do that. And we struck a friendship. Mm-hmm. So that was 43 years ago. Wow. I interviewed him 2009 after he had been away for a while serving as the Minister of uh, Tourism for mm-hmm. Panama. Mm-hmm. He had a new album out. I went to his home in New York and spent a considerable amount of time. I, I think I did like a two-hour interview with him. Mm-hmm. And he shared an interview that he had always thought that he was going to die young. Mm-hmm. And that's why he was doing a lot of things that he was doing. And he said in the interview, he says, you know what? This is the first time I'm sharing this. Mm. I've never said this publicly to mm. people about feeling this way, right? And I did another interview with a gentleman named Chel Feliciano, who passed after I did the interview, in which he told a story. And this was after their concert in Connecticut. We're back, you know, we're in the dressing room, we're doing the concert. And his road manager and others were listening to the interview. And he said some things that were very personal and he had never shared. And the road manager and the other said, oh my God, I never heard that. I need a copy of that. That 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 is, I can't I can't believe he just shared all that stuff. I didn't know that. Yeah. Right? And so- That's a successful interview exactly, right there. Exactly, yeah. because you, you, you get nuggets that you've never, you know, expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and for whatever reason, at that moment in time, Artists such as these who do yeah. thousands of interviews decide at this moment in time, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, they're going to share it with you. Yeah. Um, but I've been blessed. You know, um, I recently did an interview with Eddie Palmieri, who's celebrating his 82nd birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's an iconic figure who I, I brought up to Boston for the first time back in April 1976. Mm-hmm. And we've known each other since then. Um, and I've interviewed him hundreds of times, mm. but every time it's just such a rewarding experience mm. to be able to talk with him and have him share everything that he has to share. Yeah. And so these interviews for me are very important. Yeah, they're very important, and and they're interviews that I I I want the audience to understand the importance of the person I'm interviewing. Have you ever thought about, or maybe you've already worked on this uh, in, to a degree, of publishing these interviews? Of, I mean, <laughs> there's hundreds, thousands of them probably. It would t- it'd be a ton of work. But it sounds like there's some information that would be really valuable to share. And, of course, if it went out on terrestrial radio, we may not have access to it, especially yeah. if it was 40 years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if you have... Uh, I've got cassettes. Mm-hmm. And I've got reel-to-reels, which are hard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, no, I've got a lot of the interviews, and I've got a lot of the cassettes of the interviews, and now I've got a lot of CDs, and then I've got a lot of flash drives. <laughs> so it's, it's changed. So I'm writing a book. Oh. I'm writing a book, and the name of it is Salsa Divina. And my wife's name is Divina. Mm. And she was the one, that, the one that gave me the name for the book. You know, mm. She woke up one morning and says, I know what you're going to call it, Salsa Divina. You're going to name it after me. Yeah, Salsa <laughs> Divina. I said, great. And so basically it's my sharing. And, and the way it started, Rob, and you'll appreciate this in the world that you live in. So BUR in 2010 was really urging all of us to get on social media. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really were pushing us. Look, yeah. you've got to get on social media. And I was like, no, <laughs> no way. I don't want to do any of that. That's crazy. You know, it takes so much time. And, and so they said, look, by this date, you at least have to be on Facebook. All right. So I got on Facebook. And when I first got on Facebook, I looked at things. And I said, this is this is so trite. It's <laughs> trivial. I mean, LOL and this yeah. and that. And it's like, why do people share these things? Yeah. And who wants to know these things? Because in reality... <laughs> 
Thank you, but yeah, too much information. And so when my dad died in 2009, my mother asked me, because my dad had been in the military. He had retired as a major in the United States Army. He was very organized. And I was the uh, executor of his will. And I was in Puerto Rico at our home, and I was going through his files, and my mother saw me. And she said, why don't you write a story about your dad, about your family, because you're a good writer, mm -hmm. you're a good storyteller, and you're like your father. You archive a lot of things. You're very good mm -hmm. in organizing how you archive all these documents, which is true. I've got mm -hmm. things since I was six years old, wow. you know, and, and she knows that about mm -hmm. me. And so I wrote this piece in Facebook soon after I got on Facebook in Spanish about my grandmother and my father and family. It was a rather long piece. Mm. And people responded in a positive way. And I said, well, that's interesting. Maybe this will be a forum where I can at least get feedback from people as to some of my ideas or some of my, my essays. So I wrote another one, and then I wrote another one. And by the fourth one, people said, this sounds like a book. Mm -hmm. It reads like a book. This is like a chapter of a book. Are you writing a book? I said, Hmm, I guess I am. I didn't realize it, but I am. And so I would put all these essays together that were basically autobiographical, but they would also be historical. And I would try to weave in as much as possible these experiences that I had, either in government and politics, with musicians and community, uh, with whatever that experience was, that anecdote, I would tie it as much as possible to that. And a lot of times I would try to at least offer a thought as to here's something I'm thinking about along this line. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Without asking the question, but at least generate yeah, feedback. Instant feedback yeah, from potential feedback. readers. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, my my goal is that I would finish by 2019. Mm -hmm. So that way in 2020, when I celebrate my 45th anniversary, it'll be published mm -hmm. and I will have that book. The idea of the audio component, you've just brought that to my attention. I never thought about mm. using those as, you know, how do I transfer that? Um, do I do a transcript of the audio? Do I, I never thought about that. So mm -hmm. that's a good idea. I thought about the photos because I have to have mm -hmm. a lot of photos yeah. um, and documents that go along with, you know, my wife. When she first met me, she says, why do you keep this program? Why do you keep that flyer? Why do you keep this ticket? Why do you keep that? I said, because these things document that particular moment in time, which mm -hmm. will then trigger a memory of what was happening at that particular moment in time. Right. And uh, now she understands it, of course. Mm -hmm. But but that's a good idea, the idea of how do I, how do I get those interviews in a way that people will... Uh, understand what they were thinking at that particular time. Yeah, and there's programs now that you can plug it. You can just drop in an MP3 and it'll it'll Translate transcribe the whole thing. Oh, great! Yeah, great. so I can tell you about. It's thank more, you. It's called Descript. Is the okay. one that I've been using. Okay. Well, then thank you. I will do that. We're getting close to wrapping this thing up, and it just it just occurred to me. I want to ask you a question, which is not really a wrapping up question, but I'm just curious, so I'm going to ask it anyway. But what is your opinion on the future of Puerto Rico? I know that there's sort of three camps. Um, you know, statehood, uh, independence, and uh, continuing as a territory, right? So, what is what is your kind of take? Well, on first that? and foremost, let's let's admit to the fact that Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States. Mm -hmm. um, you know, territory—you can use that term—but we're a colony. Mm -hmm. And so, I think if any good could come out of Hurricane Maria in 2017, is an awakening to the relationship that many of us have known has been the relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. of which one is a colony to another. And so the question for Puerto Rico, and for those of us in the diaspora, 
is what is the Puerto Rico we want to see in the future and how do we go about creating that Puerto Rico? Accepting that there are going to be challenges, but accepting that there are opportunities if we all collectively agree that we're going to lean in, to use that expression, to create what that opportunity is going to be. Mm -hmm. I've been to Cuba three times, and what impressed me about Cuba is even though they didn't have access to all the things that we've become accustomed to. You know, uh, something happens to our, our automobile, we take it to the dealer or we go to auto, uh, pet, uh, pet Boys or Auto Shop or whatever it is, we find the pieces that we need. In Cuba, you couldn't do that. You had to create the solution. You had to be creative in what you're going to do mm -hmm. for this particular challenge. Um, and even though they had that scarcity of material, that did not take away their intellectual ability to think, to be creative, to be solution-driven, to be thinkers that were critical thinkers and at the same time uh, work in teams to come up with the solution. In other words, it wasn't about the individual. It was about, we've got a problem here. Let's all participate in how we're going to come up with the solution. And they had values that to me, were very much the values that I grew up with mm -hmm. in Puerto Rico. Respect for the elder, that we want to invest in our children so that they would be, as I said before, healthy children, and that we were part of a community and a society that was responsible for each other and at the same time proud of our resources, proud of our island and the beauty that it has to offer, proud of you know our heritage and who we are. That being part of the asset, then it's how do we then move us from a mindset of dependency to a mindset of independence, mm -hmm. which is a hard order, right? Because people say, okay, how do you create where you have always been dependent on this other nation to do for you what you haven't been able to do for yourself? So it's sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And how many people are willing to sacrifice to be able to create what it is. Mm -hmm. How many people are willing to see what best practices work around the world and know that everything changes because nothing remains the same. You know, yeah. um, the 1950s and 60s and early 70s of Puerto Rico's economic boom was based on an interesting um, relationship between United States industries and Puerto Rico where they weren't paying taxes and thus we benefited. But once that ended, that ended and you know, the United States used Puerto Rico as its lap so that they could take it to some other country and do the same thing and do another country and do the same thing before yeah. long. That's how, you know, these internet, these these trade deals occurred that mm -hmm. you say, okay, we're going to go where there is a uh, an inventory of people who can work and work for less than that they're working for in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so that's how the world order of economics has changed. So you have to be aware of that. So then you have to say, is it that we're going to be industrious or is it that we're going to use our intellect and be educated to be able to use this intellectual capital of knowledge, be it in you know technology moving forward in 21st century, be it in the bio industry, is it going to be in energy, is it going to be in uh, an agrarian um, society that's going to be 21st century model compared to the 20th century mm -hmm. model? What is going to be the menu of opportunities that we believe will be an opportunity for us to survive as a country mm -hmm. and at the same time thrive as people. And that's the challenge, yeah. right? Now, 
I've got more yesterdays and tomorrow's more past and future. So my time is limited as to how much I could do. But my hope is that the time I've got, I can contribute to that kind of thinking and that kind of mobilizing people to accept that they can take their own responsibility and be independent and not do it as being, I'm anti-American by being independent. On mm -hmm. the contrary, you're just reshifting the relationship so it's a, a relationship of respect for each other. Mm -hmm. I have nothing against the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, I have some issues about the United States government on certain things that they've done historically. Mm -hmm. But as far as this country, this is a great country. The yeah. people here, they're great people. So I'm not anti-American. Mm -hmm. Being pro-Puerto Rican does not make you anti-American. Right. Being pro-Puerto Rican does not make you anti-American. Um, and that notion and that, uh, that uh, discourse that we've been given over the years, that narrative that it, you can't be independent because... If you're independent, that means you're a socialist or you're a communist or you're a Marxist or you're anti-American, etc. That is something that's just been ingrained as a political foil for people not to pursue independence. Yeah. When in reality, independence is a noble thing. Mm -hmm. The United States was was made because yeah. of independence. That's right. It's a noble thing. It's something to aspire to, and you can do it in a way in which you will be respected and you will respect others and they will respect you as i said before so i am all on all in for independence there you go okay that answers that question <laughs> i have no doubt you'll be an important messenger and advocate for that idea as uh, we move forward so what's ahead for you you talked about the 45th anniversary a couple years away and the book anything else that's on the horizon for you and consalsa well i hope to be healthy first of all i, I pray yeah. that i'm healthy that's the yeah, number one you had thing. a cancer yes battle. i've had a couple cancer battles of which i'm i'm, I'm blessed with good health that's thank great, god um, you know, I suffer from dry mouth and, and what's called uh, uh, silent reflex. So what you hear right now is my morning my morning mm -hmm. voice, which takes a while before it gets to the voice that I usually use on radio. But At nevertheless, midnight, yeah, yeah. But nevertheless, um, you know, my hope is to to write the book. My hope is to be in a place to be able to celebrate the 45th anniversary of Consalsa health wise, and I hope to contribute um, some more in trying to at least create opportunities for young people to be part of who we are moving forward. I mean, I sleep well because mm -hmm. of young people. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I engage with uh, my colleagues of my age who have retired and uh, on a weekly basis we'll have coffee and undoubtedly one or two will complain about the week's news and mm -hmm. blame it on young people. Mm -hmm. and uh, And then they'll go through this whole, you know, um, no, young people this and that and this and that. And I'll listen and listen. Then I say, listen, I don't know who you hang out with, but I wish you would hang out with the young people I hang out with mm -hmm. because I have faith in them. I think young people, uh, this is their generation, this is their century, this is their moment. Um, they are more than able to deal with the challenges that we have. They're more than prepared to be creative as to what the solutions will be. They are definitely much more in tune to how we're more how we have more in common than we have apart. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, when we think about diversity, people tend to think of like diversity as, you know, this sector is at the table, this sector is at the table, this sector is at the table. It's not so much about diversity, it's about inclusion. Mm -hmm. It's about making sure that all these voices and thoughts are being heard regardless of age, gender, race, ethnicity, you know, sexual preference, it doesn't matter. 
they need to be included in this kind of conversation. And I find young people are much more open to that inclusiveness. Mm, yeah, true. Much more open to that inclusive. And music, you can see it all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, at Berkeley, you see it as, you know, you have people from, you know, Danilo Perez Global Jazz Initiative Institute. When you see that, mm. you're looking at, okay, all these people, some who have a challenge language-wise, et cetera, et cetera, but they definitely mesh when they're performing together. Oh, they, yeah. they, they find a way of... of cohesiveness they they tackle the charts and say okay here's the chart what's the challenge let's do it and so if we're able to do that as young people are able to do that we're going to be in a good place so i want to at least play a role in in promoting that and and giving agency empowering young people to be part of the solution to be at the table in ways that they haven't been. Well, I love to hear that. Uh, thank you for that. And thank you for your positivity and your advocacy in the community and the radio show and everything else you do. It's been great to talk to you today. It's been my pleasure, Rob, an honor. I appreciate you and, and congratulations on this. This this might give me an idea as well. Yeah. So thank you. I appreciate great. it. Thanks, Jose. It's good. Thank you. You can listen to Jose Masso and Consalsa every Saturday night at WBUR.org via whatever radio listening platform you use or, yes, over the terrestrial airwaves. May they vibrate forever. This episode was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki. Matt Jensen composed and recorded the theme music. Subscribe to the Media Narrative podcast and newsletter at themedianarrative.com. I'm Rob Hoschel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>